Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Good morning. My name is Rob Dampo. I'm the pastor here. It's good to see you all this morning. We've had a, a good week. It's good to see Martin back as he was at uh, Bill's uh, service yesterday in Chicago. So um, if you have any questions about that, I'm sure Martin can, can help you with that as well. I spent uh, three days this week in Washington, D.C. Um, with a group of evangelical pastors um, advocating for peace in the Middle East. And we've solved the problem, so it's all going to be gone. Um, uh, but uh, so I'll be happy to fill you in on that as well. I just want to let you know, um, this morning we're continuing our study of the, of the uh, Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at a number of stories in Luke chapter 7 and Luke chapter 8. Um, and these stories are going to illustrate um, Jesus' um, uh, the end of his sermon, the end of his speech in chapter 6. He, he finishes his speech in Luke chapter 6 and he says, Look, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Pretty convicting, huh? Right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? So we're going to look at uh, a number of stories in chapter 7 and 8 of people who beginning to implement and do and follow uh, what Jesus himself says. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to the Gospel. Luke chapter 7, page 70. I'm trying. It, technology these days, right? Let me go back and try it again. Let's try it this way. Still not working, James. No. Oh, is it? Is it me? It's me. All right, good. <laughs> Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> the Gospel of Luke. Um, uh, it, it's easy to read these stories in the Gospel of Luke or any of the Bible um, and just kind of Go through the motions. If you've been in church for a while, study school class, you read the stories, and they're good stories. Uh, you think about, well, what does that mean for me today? And we kind of go along our way. Um, but when we do that, sometimes we lose sight of why the author, Luke himself, wrote the story. You know, what's it doing in here? How does this story play into the whole gospel story that, that Luke is trying to tell us? And so let me remind us of the story that Luke is weaving. The story that Luke is weaving is... Very simple. Jesus is the king. He's Lord. But another way of saying that is Jesus is king. Uh, he tells us in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke that the stories of John the Baptist and this, uh, his coming. And we realize that John the Baptist is the one who's going to anoint the new king of Israel. And that king is Jesus. Jesus begins his kingdom, of course, by being baptized and then going into the city of Nazareth. There in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke, in the city of Nazareth, Jesus proclaims to all those in Nazareth that the prophecy of Isaiah 61 is being fulfilled in your hearing. I have come to proclaim good news to the poor, to set the captives free. The blind will receive sight and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This is what my kingdom is going to look like. Now, chapter 5 of the Gospel of Luke and the beginning of 6, Jesus confronts the religious leaders. Because the religious leaders were wanting the king of Israel to come, but not really with the message that Jesus was bringing. So Jesus confronts them and says, look, you've got to get rid of your old wineskins because I've got new wine. The gospel I'm bringing won't fit in your old wineskins. It'll burst them. 
you got to think differently. Then in chapter 6, which we spend a number of weeks on, Jesus explains, blessed are going to be the poor, and woe are you going to be those who are rich. Blessed are those of you who are hungry now, and woe to those who are well fed now, and blessed are those who are persecuted, and woe to those when all men speak well of you. What my kingdom looks like, Jesus says, is it looks like loving your enemies and blessing those who persecute you. My kingdom means that when you give, don't expect anything in return. Give without expecting anything back. Now, we mentioned this last week. This doesn't make any sense. In the Roman economic system, the entire economy of Rome was built on a system called patronage. And patronage basically means I, the big, fancy, wealthy guy, will do something for you as a city. I'll build you a theater, and now everybody in the city owes me because I built a theater. And I'm going to get a, a political office in the, in, in the city and, and, and get revenue that way and be, because you owe me this debt and obligation. I do something for you, and now you owe me. And Jesus says, no, when you give, don't expect anything in return. He's undermining the entire system of economics in the Roman world. Then he finishes this with, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? There's two words, by the way, that cannot be uttered in the same sentence. No, Lord. If he's Lord, can't tell him no. If you tell him no, he ain't your Lord. No, Lord. Can't happen. Luke chapter 4, just to remind us, verse 18 and 19 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. And to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So the question now as we turn to chapter 7 is how are people going to respond to Jesus? Chapter 7 now verse 1. When Jesus finished saying these things to the people who were listening. He entered Capernaum. And there a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some of the elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Verse 4. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Verse 7, that's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But I say, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this he was amazed at him. And he turned to the crowd following him and he said, "Uh, I tell you I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent uh, returned to the house and found the servant well. A centurion is a commander of a hundred men. Capernaum, I'll show you a map in a a bit, and I'll point out Capernaum on the map, but Capernaum was just across the border from Golanitis in the region of Galilee up in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee region in northern Israel. Because it's a border crossing, you're going to find a few things there that we see in the Bible. Because it's a border crossing, you'll find tax collectors. 
So we'll come across a man named Matthew, a tax collector, who happened to be in Capernaum, because it's crossing a border, you've got to collect the taxes. But you're also going to find a Roman centurion with a hundred soldiers, because you've got to keep the peace at these border crossings. Now the Roman centurion knows how it works. I'm Roman, I have the power, you're the Jews, you don't like me. How are we going to make this thing work? I know how I'll make it work. I'll build you a synagogue, and now you're in my debt. It's a Roman system of patronage. I do something for you. You owe me. You'll do what I say. You'll keep peace because I built you a synagogue. So the centurion's servant falls sick, and note what the Jewish people do. Jesus, he's worthy. He built us a synagogue. And the way it works, Jesus, is we now owe him. He's worthy for you to come and, and to heal his servant. But as Jesus begins to come, the centurion realizes, uh, actually, Jesus isn't in my debt. I don't have anything on Jesus. If Jesus comes and does this for me, I'm going to owe him. So, no, Jesus, I'll tell you what. You don't actually have to come. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And the man displays faith and trust. And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? How are you going to respond to this Jesus? And the first person we see responding to Jesus is a Roman soldier, a Gentile. The story tells us that Luke is more concerned with the faith of the centurion than with the miracle. If you think about it, the miracle kind of gets like one little note. Verse 10, oh, by the way, the centurion's servant was healed. In verse 10. They went to the house, and they found the servant well. The story is not about the healing. The story is about the faith of a centurion. Let's go to verse 11 now and find another story. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And his disciples, a large crowd, went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. A large crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw uh, her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier that they were carrying him on, and the, bear, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The city of Nain here on the map is, you can see, just south of uh, Nazareth. There's Nazareth here, up in Galilee. Uh, Capernaum will be right up here. Uh, this is the border right here between Galilee and, 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 uh, and Galilee. So now Jesus has come down here to the south, to the city of Nain, uh, and he sees a widow. She's a widow, and her only son is dead. Blessed are the poor. Woe to you who are rich. You understand, poor is a larger category than just material or physically not having any money. Uh, the poor are the outsiders, the Roman centurions, the poor. He's not part of Israel. He's excluded from us. Uh, the poor includes this woman who's especially poor because she has no male to care for her. Her husband's gone and her only son lies dead. She's the epitome of poor because now she has, has no income and she has no source of income. No one to provide for her. 
Jesus comes up. And he doesn't only just feel sorry for the woman. He raises her son from the dead. Verse 18. John's disciples told, uh, told him about all the things that Jesus was doing, essentially. Verse 18. Uh, calling two of his disciples then, John sent them to, to Jesus, to, to the Lord, to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you ask, to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? This is one of the most hilarious verses in the scripture to me. I'm sorry, this is incredible. If you've been reading the Gospel of Luke at all, John the Baptist in chapter 1 was six months in his mother's womb, Elizabeth. When Mary comes knocking on the door, Elizabeth doesn't know who's at the door, but John the Baptist leaps in the womb. And Mary says, the mother of my Lord has come. Six months in utero, he knows who Mary is. Now, surely, after John the Baptist was born, his father, Zechariah, tells him the stories about how he was not allowed to speak for the nine months that John the Baptist was in the womb. Because an angel appeared to Zechariah while he was in the temple. And so he's telling his son these stories. I, I, I couldn't talk. They wanted to ask me, you know, what's your name? I wrote on a chalkboard, your name is John. And once I wrote on the name, your name is John, then I could talk again. Amazing, this miraculous birth, an angel told me that God was going to give you our son. He knows about his birth. Surely he knows about Mary and her story. This young virgin woman, not actually even married, who the Holy Spirit has impregnated. And then Jesus comes up to John the Baptist now, 30 years later, and says, baptize me. John's like, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I mean, think about it. You should, you should be baptizing me. Jesus says, no, baptize me. Jesus baptized, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and according to the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, and John saw it. John the Baptist tells his disciples that that's the guy you need to follow because the Lord told me that when I baptize him, the Holy Spirit will fall upon him, and he's the one you got to follow. And I saw the Holy Spirit fall on him. Follow him. Nobody knows better than John the Baptist who Jesus is. Are you the one who is to come? I hear the stories about what you're doing. <clears throat> kind of cool. You raised the dead woman's son. That's, that's great. Good job. Thank you. You told a centurion that a servant was well. Excellent. But John the Baptist is doubting. Why in the world? How could he doubt? The answer is simple. Gospel, Luke te Gospel of Matthew tells us that when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Matthew tells us that John sent the people because he's in jail and he can't go for himself. And I suppose that if he weren't in jail, he wouldn't have bothered to go because it wouldn't have been a problem. The problem is, I'm your cousin. I'm the one who anointed you to be the king. If you're the king, what am I doing in jail? If you're the king, act like it. Be the king. I mean, raising a daughter, a son, that's nice. Telling a centurion his servants, that's good stuff. But get me out of this place. 
I don't like your kingdom. I'm not sure I like the way you're ruling, Jesus. I want it to be different. I want to be in power. The bad guys are Rome. I'm the good guys. So why does it look like Rome has me in jail and the guy's about to lop my head off? If you're the king. Jesus responds. Luke 7 says, At that time Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, evil spirits, gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers of John the Baptist, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Doesn't seem like an answer that would satisfy John the Baptist, but it's a quote from the book of Isaiah. It has to satisfy John the Baptist, because this is what Isaiah said the kingdom would look like. I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. It's you who have the false or poor or weak understanding of what the kingdom looks like. Verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus, chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Jesus is at a dinner. Now you got to remember the culture and the customs. When you have someone over for dinner, you're doing them a favor, so now they owe you, right? Debt and obligation. But you only invite over for dinner those who can pay you back, meaning the poor are not going to be at this meal. Only the ones who fall into my debt and who can do, me, do something about it. So a, a rich guy has Jesus over for dinner. He happens to be a religious leader as well. But apparently, somewhere earlier maybe in the day, we don't know, Jesus has forgiven a, a, a prostitute's sins. And the prostitute recognizes what she's done, what he's done, and apparently she ran home to get an alabaster jar of perfume. Now understand, the prostitute probably doesn't have a husband, and she probably doesn't have a son. So she's poor. She has no one to provide for her own economic well-being. And the only physical, material good she probably has is in this jar. Uh, these alabaster jars would hold a, a, a lot of oil and, and it would probably be, um, you know, several, uh, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50,000 dollars in our economy worth of, uh, uh, of oil. This is a lot of money she's got. And it's her, uh, uh, it's her retirement account. It's all she has. But she's just been, been, been told that she's restored to society by Jesus. She, she's good. She, she's, she's okay. So she runs home and she, I don't care where he's at. Oh, that's where he's at. She runs in the house. All social conventions are out the door here. She's not allowed in this meal, folks. She ain't allowed in this home. I don't care. I, I'm going. And she runs in the home. She pours all she has on Jesus. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, Note, he does not say this out loud. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching me and uh, touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, which means he's a prophet. 
Simon, I have something to tell you. Uh, tell me, teacher, he said. Well, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, a denarii is a day's wages. So 500 days wages, and another owed him 50. Neither of them had the money to pay back, so he forgave the debts of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt, forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Simon's questioning whether Jesus is a prophet now, right? But Jesus apparently knows what the man's thinking, which means he's a prophet indeed. Simon replies to, the, to Jesus and says, uh, teacher, a title of respect, but not really uh, understanding exactly that he totally, fully understands who Jesus is. Jesus explains to Simon, the one who is forgiven of a greater debt will love even more. The one who's forgiven of a greater debt will love even more. This is true. We see this in the church, by the way. The one who's forgiven of a greater debt worships better than the one who doesn't. The one who's forgiven of a greater debt gives more. The one who is forgiven of a greater debt is more enthusiastic. The one who's forgiven of a greater debt, they know the hell they came from, and they know what salvation means. I consider it a privilege that God called me to faith in Christ when I was about eight years old. But to some extent, I don't know the hell that God saved me from because I didn't have to go through it, thanks be to God. But sometimes that puts us at a disadvantage. That's why I need to be reminded, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. How great thou art. I need to be reminded of that because sometimes I don't have that advantage that some of you have. Because you know, if it's not for the grace of God, there go I. Verse 40, uh, 44. Jesus turned toward the woman, but said to Simon. Note no carefully. He's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say to themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Shalom. Go in peace. Shalom is not just a word you say when you're greeting somebody or when they're leaving. Shalom is a word of peace. It's, it's, it's a statement of, I, I wish you well. I hope that all is well. You are restored to society. He didn't just forgive her sins. He restored her to society. You see, she came in the house poor, but she didn't leave poor. She came in the house needing, lacking, but she didn't leave that way. Simon didn't give Jesus water for his feet, a common sign of hospitality. He didn't greet him with a kiss, a common formal greeting that you do to anybody. 
didn't put oil on Jesus' head, a gesture of kindness. But yet when the woman comes in and does things inappropriate, he calls her to task. The woman instead wet Jesus' feet with her tears and washed and wiped them. Something Simon didn't do. She has not stopped kissing his feet. Something Simon didn't do. Her actions are not only honorable, they're extravagant. Chapter 8, very quickly, one more story. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, uh, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Mary Magdalene, you may recall or may not recall, is the only woman mentioned in all four Gospels as being present at the resurrection of Jesus at the tomb. All four Gospels agree that there's a number of women there, but only Mary Magdalene is mentioned by all four Gospels. Yet, look at her background. She had seven demons cast out of her. Now, by the way, some try to connect Mary Magdalene with the woman in the previous chapter. There's no reason to do that. There's nothing in the text that suggests that the prostitute was Mary Magdalene. So if you've heard that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute and demon-possessed, well, she was demon-possessed, but there's no indication that 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 was actually her there. But a group of women are caring for Jesus' needs. All right, so what does this mean for us today? Let's learn a couple things. Number one, Jesus does does not exclude people based on race, economics, social status, nor gender. Jesus does not exclude people based on race, economics, social status, nor gender. The centurion was not excluded by Jesus. He was racially not Jewish. He's an outcast. He doesn't appear to be the poor, but he's poor by the definition of the Jewish and the Pharisaical uh, definitions. He's out. He's them. We're us. He's them. He's not in. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. And even the centurion and his servant are made well. Uh, The woman who has no husband and her son's dead is economically poor. She epitomizes the poor. The prostitute is a social outcast. She's also the poor. And the women who follow Jesus around and provide for his ministry are by gender, not excluded by Jesus. By, he doesn't exclude people based on race, economic, social status, nor gender. Now this is easy for us to talk about in church, right? Because you mean we all hear sermons about Jesus and how he loves everybody and he doesn't care what race you are or what gender you are. And then what do we do? We go off into our world of prejudice, our world of bias. And by the way, some of the biases and prejudices are just, they're just inherent. Uh, you know, if, if you're new to our church or you're not familiar, you know, we affirm the role of women in ministry. That's why we have no problem with women giving announcements or women doing verses or, or women leading worship or women, women doing the offering or women preaching a sermon. We affirm that in the new creation of, that Christ has inaugurated, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. That the creation that God intended in Genesis is being fulfilled through Jesus now as well as in the New Jerusalem. But folks, let's be honest, we still have an inherent bias. It's just sometimes if a man says something, it'll just simply carry more weight than a woman. We have this inherent bias in our culture that still affects us in our churches. 
Martin Luther King Jr., of course, said, uh, probably quoting somebody earlier, that the uh, 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. We still struggle with bias and discrimination and cultural differences and the, the, the bringing people together. We've talked the last couple of weeks about uh, that love and what love looks like. And the, the definition of love is that it does not seek its own, right? Love seeks the interests of others. And so we applied that to music. And we said, look, uh, I, we, we want to applaud our congregation because we, we have one song that appeals to you and one song that appeals to you, and we still come. Even though half the songs or so I don't like, or half the songs you don't like. And we said, look, how about not just not liking and tolerate them, tolerating the songs, how about actually praising God and rejoicing because somebody else likes that song? Because somebody else worshiped to a good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. And that repetition didn't annoy me. That's who you are. That's who you are. And then somebody else is worshiping because how great thou art. Then sings my soul. And great. Amen. But there's one more stop. You see, because if love recognizes the importance of the other, then what about the person who's not in our church? What about when they come and visit? Are we worshiping in a way that encourages them? Are we including them in our community? Are we including them in our fellowship? Are we welcoming them into our community? Because Jesus doesn't allow any room for discrimination, no matter who we are or where we come from. And number two, the raising of the young man, uh, the, 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 the man that was dead, shows that compassion needs to go well beyond empathy. You see, what we do as Christians, and this is the way we do it, right? we see this woman, she's a widow, her only son is dead, and what do we do? We feel sorry for her, we come up to her, and we say, I will pray for you. I will pray for you. That's not a bad thing, by the way. I'm not putting that down. By the way, if you say, I will pray for you, pray for them. Don't just make it words that we say that we actually don't do. And the best habit you can do, by the way, is just pray at that moment. You know, at least you got it out of the way and you didn't lie. You know, and I, I, you know, but I will pray for you. And that's good. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor. And it doesn't mean just stay poor so you can be blessed. I came to bring good news to the poor. This is the gospel of Jesus. And good news to the poor means you're no longer going to be poor. It's not good news because you're poor. It's good news because you're no longer going to be poor. The centurion, you're no longer out. You're in. The woman who has no son, guess what? I'm going to raise her son from the dead. He meets her economic needs. So she doesn't remain poor. The prostitute who's excluded from society and from culture, not allowed in these meals, go in peace. I'm restoring you to society. You're on the same level as all of us. You can come in with us. You can eat with us. You can, I'm restoring you. It's good news to the poor because they're no longer poor. If we just have good news to the poor about a savior who died for them, that's a great start. But if we don't help them out of their poorness, we're not doing what Jesus asked us to do. Whether that's a gender bias or a racial bias or a social bias or, or a, a handicap bias or an economic bias. Jesus said, I came 
to bring good news to the poor. Number three, one of the reasons that Jesus was successful in ministry, and I want to stop before I finish that sentence. One of the reasons why Jesus was successful in ministry, we'll commonly fill in the blank with, he was successful in ministry because he was God the Son. Of course he's going to be, you know, he was successful in ministry because he was anointed by the Spirit. He was successful in ministry, if we're really spiritual, by the way, we'll say, he was successful in, spiritual, in ministry because he prayed a lot. Right? That's a good one. All right, okay. right? You're with me, aren't you? All right, am I just going too long? It's a sermon like too long or something like that? All right, here we go. All right. One of the reasons why Jesus was successful in ministry was because he had support. One of the reasons why Jesus was successful in ministry was because he had support. Luke, 12, Luke 8. The twelve were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Now it goes on to describe that the women apparently were financially providing for the ministry. But note I didn't quote that verse. The twelve were with him and also some women. You can't do it alone. You need people with you. It ain't easy. I said to us a year ago, or more, I'm not sure exactly, the, uh, approximately a year ago, when we began talking about moving forward as a congregation, and, and maybe the idea of planting a church, and maybe the idea of doing this, and, and then eventually the idea of starting a Hispanic service, I said, Satan is going to increase his activity. It ain't going to be easy. And if we think we can do this alone, we're missing. Led because even Jesus didn't do it alone. And how many of you come in this morning and are telling me the stories about a relative in surgery, being in pain and needing surgery, someone who just passed away, someone who doesn't have a job, someone who just had surgery and needs recovery, someone who's struggling with someone who just got out of recovery. So, uh, someone, how many of you? Oh, I know, a lot. If we don't see Satan's activities increasing, then we'll fail to bond and unite and bear one another's burdens. Jesus was successful in ministry because he had support. So here's our question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So here we are, Lord. We're here to do what you say. But we recognize that just like John the Baptist, it's not going to look like what we thought. It's not going to look like what we want. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be tough. It's going to be letting in that person I don't like just because he built a synagogue doesn't mean I gotta like him. Letting him in. Letting in that prostitute who doesn't belong at my dinner. No, Simon, you don't belong at my dinner. She does. Taking that person who's poor and not just saying, I'll pray for you, but alleviating their poverty and telling the prostitute, Shalom. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning, and we're just going to spend a few minutes in prayer right now. 
because we have a lot of needs in this body. And we're going to recognize right now, Lord, that you are the Lord that we're following and that we have sometimes falsely thought your kingdom was supposed to look like something that it really wasn't supposed to look like. And like John the Baptist, we were led astray and we became disgruntled and questioned and wondered whether this is really even what uh, your kingdom or not. And then we find out that your kingdom is good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the captives free, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And so, Father, for those in surgery right this moment, we pray that your mercy and healing will be upon them. For those who need surgery, that you'll give them strength and persevere until they can get to that doctor's appointment. <coughs> <coughs> For those having surgery tomorrow, may you have mercy and healing and strength and com comfort and compassion. And for all those who are being brought to doctor's offices, may these doctors and nurses and caretakers hear and see and witness the love of Jesus in these people's lives. And for those who are just recovering from surgery and coming out of care facilities, may you bring healing and life and restoration to them. And may you fill this congregation back up with those who are ill and struggling and give us hope and life and strength and courage to press on and help us, Father, to, to love one another and to so fulfill the law of Christ, to give without expecting anything in return because it's not about me any longer. It's about Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. And so, Lord, we thank you that there were 14 people at the Grove last night. We thank you that there were, I don't know, 20 kids or more and families on Friday night at the Covert's house just rejoicing and fellowshipping and that these kids would see Jesus and come to know you and experience life in your name. We thank you, Father, for Pastor Ricardo and the service that's going to happen this afternoon and pray that you'd fill this church up this afternoon with a Spanish-speaking congregation, that Jesus will be proclaimed in many languages and through many, many, many lives. And then, Lord, we have these, prayer, these shawls that are next to me that have been knit by these women who have come together to fellowship and to bless one another and to be encouraged and to have a good time, but also to knit and to spend the time and the money putting these things together. And, Lord, the children and the people that are going to receive these epitomize the poor of Jesus' gospel. Not necessarily financially poor, but they're destitute. They're, they feel like outcasts. They feel like there's no one around them to love them. And so may they receive these gifts and be reminded that there's a church that has a Savior that loves them, that died for them to redeem them, that these kids are made in your image, and that they're of value, and that there's meaning and purpose to their life. May just these simple shawls and hats and blankets remind them of that. And more than that, Lord, may the church come alongside and advocate for them. May we become big brothers and big sisters. May we come to their schools and counsel them and guide them and, 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 and help tutor them and strengthen them. And may, may we provide food that the, those who need food and clothes beyond this that, for those who need clothes and a brother or a sister or a friend, a mother or a father for those who need such. 
that they might no longer be poor. And we thank you for the challenging message of Jesus Christ. And we remind ourselves, Lord, this morning that we are poor and that it's amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And we give you praise. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.